So, uh, welcome to church. If, um, if I've not met you before, I'm Sam. I'm married to Sarah, uh, who I don't think is here at the moment. And we have a little baby called Ava. Um, we've been doing a series at Southwest London Vineyard on Advent. And we've been looking at various different aspects of the, uh, of the Christmas story. The promise of the king Lily spoke on last week, um, if you're here uh, then um, you'll, you'll know it was, it, was, it was amazing. And if not, then please download it. Um, and this morning, we're going to be looking at the, um, the coming of the king. Um, and in Advent, uh, the Advent period, we sort of kind of associate it with the birth of Jesus, but that wasn't always the case. Um, uh, originally, uh, it was often associated with the second coming of Christ. Um, and this chap, uh, if you just um, put the slide up, this this little guy, um, Bernard of Clairvaux, he talked about three different types of advents. We have the first coming of Jesus, we have the return of Jesus, and then we have uh, the presence of Jesus that comes to be with us now. Um, and uh, uh, on Friday, Sarah and I uh, celebrated the birth, the first birthday of uh, our daughter Ava. Um, and uh, she, she turned one on Friday. Uh, before we before we um, before we had her, we had a, a, an appointment with Isabel Bradley, who is our midwife, and we put together what's called a birth plan. Um, and if you've had kids, you'll know what a birth plan is. But uh, essentially, I think it's the the thing that you throw out the window when <laughs> when everything goes wrong. Basically, you have something to <laughs> to kind of forget. Um, when everything goes mental. Um, but we put together a birth plan of kind of how we wanted things to go. Um, I don't know if you've read in the news recently, there was a, a woman on South Western Railway called Naomi Mercurelli, uh, who went into labour on the train. And um, this is her with the guard, Martin Miller, um, who was walking through the train at the time uh, when Naomi alerted him uh, that she was going into labour. I'm sure that was... Uh, uh, yeah, quite a powerful moment. Um, uh, and he immediately informed the control centre and requested an ambulance to meet her at Surbiton Station, um, which is where I think she is there, and uh, gave, gave birth to her baby, Sophia. She said, I was only going into London to run some errands. I went into labour at 10.40 on board the train. By 11.10, baby Sophia was born at the hospital. My friends and family were all very shocked when I told them the story. Um, so her birth plan clearly didn't go to plan. Um, we're going to be looking uh, this morning at the birth of Jesus, and we're going to be looking at um, God's plan, I guess, for the birth of Jesus. Maybe not Mary and Joseph's plan, um, uh, but, but it was God's plan for the birth of Jesus. Um, and then we're going to look at various different aspects of what that may mean for us. So um, the idea of God becoming a person, just how... Uh, crazy that is. Um, also, I want to look at briefly how God is a fulfiller of promises um, and how sometimes waiting is actually quite a hard thing for us to do um, and then what it means for the kingdom to eventually eventually come. So we're going to be looking at Luke's gospel. Um, that's pretty much illegible, so I'm going to read it. Um, and if you have a Bible or a tablet or a phone, um, then please uh, read along with me. It's Luke chapter 2, 1 to 40. It's a bit of a longie, but um, I'm going to read it. And um, 
I think it's quite tempting to kind of switch off a little bit when we read really familiar Bible stories, particularly ones that we've heard year in, year out. Um, so um, as I read it, and as you read it on your phone, laptop, Bible, whatever, um, I'd encourage you to, to think again with uh, sort of a fresh eyes, as it were, uh, as we look at the story, think about it. Um, critically think about it um, in terms of the information that's being presented. Cool, so let me read it. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Uh, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth, three small words, which was probably, uh, took quite a long time and was more than, uh, than comes across in, on the page, to her firstborn son and uh, wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was, an, uh, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which, is, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. Um, I'm going to skip forward a little bit. Um, at, the time of the eight day, uh, at the time of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus and the name, uh, the name given to him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Um, now there was a man in Jerusalem, skipping forward, whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, 
And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. I think that should be Israel, but uh, it says Jerusalem. Um, so pretty amazing uh, story, uh, one that probably we've heard a bunch of times before. Um, and there's various different aspects of it that I'd like to look at this morning. Um, and the first one is that God became a person. Um, and I'd also like to look at how he became a person. And um, we have this name of God, which was prophesied in Isaiah, which Lily briefly alluded to last week, which is Emmanuel, which, which means God with us. And um, to kind of grapple with these big ideas, I don't know if you're a uh, fan of hymns. Um, believe it or not, I, I actually enjoy a hymn. Um, and I think in this sort of contemporary context where we're so used to singing maybe more intimate worship songs, it's amazing to look back at some of the, these incredibly godly people who have written amazing literature um, uh, about some of these big concepts. And the first one I just want to look at briefly is Charles Wesley. Um, this chap who in this picture has a big head and quite a small hand. Um, and he, he writes, Christ the highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Um, and uh, I love that. I love being able to re-look at... Uh, Again, probably uh, Hark the Herald is a, a Christmas hymn that we're probably all very familiar with and uh, could fall asleep to. Um, but some of the language he uses is so profound, talking about this concept of a deity becoming, uh, becoming a person. Um, I don't know if a few years ago you saw the BBC adaptation of The Nativity, um, uh, which was, uh, it was commissioned uh, by the BBC and the writer and executive producer was a guy called Tony Jordan, who for many years was the lead writer on EastEnders. Um, and I love, uh, I thought it was a really good adaptation. And I loved all the interviews that happened around the time of the story, because this is a guy who his kind of bread and butter is dealing with ordinary people and ordinary stories, um, uh, albeit with a uh, very high sort of rate of homicide and uh, lots of very strange things that probably don't happen in real life all the time. But he, he deals with ordinary people in ordinary settings. And he uh, was commissioned to write this story and he wrote the nativity and it was on the BBC. He, he, he said this when um, he was interviewed uh, on the radio around the time. He said, when I first started the project... Um, I'm not sure I had an opinion on whether the nativity was true or not. I guess I just thought it was a lovely Christmassy story with the baby Jesus in uh, a manger, and I liked it, but I never thought more about it. Um, the first couple of months, I was talking to historians and scientists who did everything they could to convince me that the story never happened. They claimed that it was a story patched together from bits of other stories and concocted by the people who wrote the Gospels to make Jesus the Messiah. So after the first couple of months, I believed that the story never happened. But then the more research that I did and the more people of faith that I spoke to, 
I realized that this was a story that wasn't written down at the time. It was passed on by word of mouth before anyone had thought to write it down. So the details of some of the timings get lost. Um, and by the 300,000th time you tell the, uh, times get lost by the 300,000th time you tell the story. Um, to me, all the things that historians held up to say this doesn't work became irrelevant. This was just a story that was told by those shepherds that were in the stable with some other shepherds, and they told some other shepherds and someone else, and then they wrote it, um, and they told someone else, and then they, uh, that went on for 100 years and they didn't, until they wrote it down. How on earth can you expect that story to be spread by word of mouth for 100 years and for the last person who hears it to have all the dates and facts exactly right? So by the, end, by the end of the process, I'm now in the position where I actually think it is true and I think it happened more or less as I've portrayed it, which I think is amazing. A secular BBC producer essentially is convicted by the power of the story that even though it's uh, been passed on by all tradition and written down and we have all these incredibly bizarre to modern ears, supernatural events going on, he essentially goes, yeah, more or less, I think it pretty much happened. Um, there is this uh, quote by Tim, Tim Keller, um, and he essentially, uh, I won't read it all, but he um, just touches upon the fact that for the Jews, uh, the God they worshipped was this sort of transcendent uh, Almost, well, it was an unspeakable God. They didn't even say, say his name. And yet, for us, we believe that he became flesh. Um, so he said, on the one hand, you've got religions that say God um, is so imminent in all things that the incarnation is normal. If you're a Buddhist or a Hindu, God is imminent in everything. On the other hand, religions like Islam and Judaism say that God is so transcendent over all things that incarnation is impossible. But Christianity is unique. It doesn't say that incarnation is normal, but it doesn't say it's impossible. Um, I'm going to skip on. So... Um, uh, for me, what I, I almost grappling with this question, it's thinking, okay, so what does it mean for God to become flesh? What does it mean for God to become one of us? And the, the, one of the things that struck me first is that God is a God of touch. Um, in uh, 2013, my sister and her husband uh, and their two young children moved to South Africa. South Africa. Um, I know we've got a few uh, Saffirs in, in our midst. Um, and, uh, yeah, so she moved out with her family. It was a really sad time because, obviously, she was uh, going, her South African husband, they were going to, uh, to move over there long term. And so it was a, an amazing time for them, but obviously sad for us because we were sort of saying goodbye to them in a way. Um, and then a couple of years later on my 30th birthday, uh, as a surprise, my family organized for her to fly over to the UK. So this is me and my sister. Soon after... Um, she surprised me. Um, and I had absolutely no idea about it. Um, and Sarah had arranged this sort of party at my parents' house. So I turned up at my parents' house and my family are there. And um, uh, saying hello to everyone. And I hear this music in the background. And it's, there's someone playing the piano. And my little brother says, oh, that's strange. What, where's that, what's that noise? Why, why is someone playing the piano? Kind of sort of like leads me into, into the, um, the living room where there's a piano and playing the piano is my sister who I'd not seen in, in, in two years and in my mind was on the other side of the world and it was the most wonderful experience seeing her in the flesh being able to give her a hug um, 
I don't know, when you haven't seen someone for a long time, their sort of face is slightly different, their hair is slightly different, they're wearing different clothes, but it's the same person that you know and love. It's the same, there's a familiarity about it, and it was just the most, uh, most special time ever. It did make me think that, you know, money isn't everything, but if it can buy a plane ticket, then great. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I kind of, I think love is about presence, um, I don't know if you've uh, encountered the book, The Five Love Languages. It's a staple Christian uh, material. Um, and it talks about the different ways that we give and receive love. Um, I think one is pr- uh, presence, as in not being there, but gifts. One is serving, one is words of affirmation, one is physical touch, and one is quality time. Um, I like that, but I, I kind of also think it's a bit of a cop-out. Um, because I kind of think that love uh, involves presence, being with someone. Because you can have all the gifts in the world. You, someone could do all your dishes and clean your house, and they could say you're lovely, but unless they're actually physically with you, sometimes it's, uh, it's not, you're not able to fully experience their love. Um, so love is about presence. It's tactile. Um, we serve an Emmanuel God who wants to be with us. He's not a distant God. And I think sometimes from distance we associate, uh, we assume that he may have certain emotions, that he might be angry, but he's not angry. He's not indifferent. Um, God is tactile. Um, in the first and second centuries, as Christianity was spreading, there was a, uh, a heresy that spread um, known as Gnosticism. And it was this set of ideas and beliefs that essentially held, it sort of, it grew in parallel with the growth of the church and it was recognized as something that was false in the teaching of the time, which essentially said that matter is inherently bad and spiritual things are inherently good. So um, Gnostics believed essentially that in order to purify yourself from the evil world that is going to be destroyed, you had to become super spiritual, essentially. Um, but that is not the theology that we believe in Christianity. Um, we believe that God's creation is good and that he will renew creation, that we will be unbelievably resurrected, um, that we will be tactile and we'll be able to enjoy uh, each other's presence in a physical way. Um, let's move on from that slide. Um, and we know that from, uh, from probably another super familiar verse uh, in the Bible, which is God so loved the world um, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And I did a bit of uh, Googling myself um, for this talk. And the word world there is the Greek cosmos. It's like, it's the universe, the world, all the inhabitants of the world, everything in it. God loves his creation. And then saved uh, is the word sozo. And I don't know if you've um, been involved with or encountered the sozo ministry in this church, but essentially it's an incredible ministry that um, came out of uh, Bethel Church in the States, whereby you can uh, receive prayer so that God can minister wholeness and healing to you. And that's what the word means. It's about wholeness and healing. So So God sent his son into the world to bring healing, to bring wholeness to his creation, not because he wants to condemn it or destroy it, but because he loves it. 
Um, so then moving on again, um, I just looked in the New Testament at various different examples of touch because uh, it says um, in the uh, writings of Paul that, um, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That if, essentially, if we want to understand the nature of God, then, Je- then looking at Jesus will help us get there. And I just love all the different examples in the Gospels about how Jesus touched people and brought about healing. Um, in Matthew, uh, he healed a man with leprosy. A, le- a leper came up to him and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. Um, Jesus, uh, with his, uh, Peter's mother-in-law, um, mother-in-law, not mother. I mean, that's super, super committed. Um, uh, Jesus entered Peter's house, and when he saw his mother-in-law laying sick with a fever, he touched her hand, and the fever left her. I mean, amazing. God is tactile. God touched her hand. Um, in Luke 4, it talks about loads of people in the crowd, and it said he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. So people were flocking around with uh, illnesses and um, all sorts of things that they needed uh, the touch of God for. And it says that Jesus touched every single one of them. Um, and there's various different other, other examples, which I won't go into. But th- if this is a model for us, then touch is really important. Um, and it's maybe not something that we uh, think about too much when we have this Gnostic idea of God that actually we just need to go to church and be super spiritual and, and not be physical and not touch. Um, so love involves touch. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, touch could make you unclean. So in the law, if a leper touched you, you were unclean. Um, or if someone who was menstruating touched you, you'd be unclean. Uh, or if you saw a dead person and you touched them, you'd be unclean. When Samson, it says that he takes honey from the carcass of a lion, um, that would have made him unclean, actually, because the, the carcass, uh, it was a carcass, it was dead. Um, whereas in the New Testament, Jesus touches people to make them clean. It's almost like a, there's a reversal. Um, so he touches the leper and makes the leper clean. It's a superior, almost a superior... Um, uh, thing going on. Um, uh, a nationwide study around uh, loneliness in the UK that said that 68% of adults in the UK say they feel lonely either often, always, or sometimes. Over half of all people aged 75 live alone. And two-fifths of older people, about 3.9 million people, say that television is their main company. So we need to bring God's touch to people. It's something that Kate often talks about in church. Um, Take a moment to turn to someone next to you uh, and put a hand on them and pray for them or whatever. And sometimes we can go into our hedgehogs mode and we uh, sort of automatically resist that kind of thing because it's really awkward. Um, But actually, um, it's important. Um, the second thing I just want to look at is, uh, going back to the nativity stories, that God is a fulfiller of promises. I love this quote from 
Nicky Gumbel, uh, in the Bible in one year, who says, if it's not all right, it's not the end. And I think that's an important uh, message for us when we're struggling to carry on cl- and uh, cling to God during times of difficulty. Um, the, shall I skip this bit out? I'm not going to. Um, so earlier in uh, Luke's Gospel, we um, read about Mary and sorry, Elizabeth and Zechariah, who's John the Baptist's parents. And uh, again, it says that they, uh, they're advanced in years, they're old. Um, Elizabeth is barren. The Bible suggests that people actually look down on her a little bit because she's barren. Um, maybe there's something wrong, wrong with, with them as a couple. Maybe they've got some sin or something uh, that they're not revealing. But the angel says to him, uh, says to Zechariah, behold, do not be afraid for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will call his name John. And you have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. Um, I uh, have this book at home. It's a name book. And I used to get teased by Aaron Koch, who's no longer part of this church. Um, before we had Ava for having a book about names because he thought I was clearly pining for children. Um, But I didn't actually get this name book for that reason. I just got it because I found names really interesting. So I've done a little bit of detective work uh, for this talk. And um, I found something really interesting that Zechariah's name means Yahweh remembers, God remembers. Uh, And Elizabeth's name means the oath of God. So it's almost like they're prophetic the word for them is God, remem- God remembers his promise. God remembers the oath of God. And he does. Even though they're advanced in years and they're struggling, they're faithfully pursuing God, continuing in his ways. And uh, they see this amazing breakthrough. Um, uh, one more quote from uh, Timmy Kay, um, which I think is really amazing. You can't judge God by your calendar. He may appear to be slow but he never forgets his promises. He may seem to be working very slowly or even forgetting his promises, but when his promises come true, and they will come true, they will burst the banks of what you imagined. And that's so true and so important for us to remember when things don't seem to be going completely as we'd, as we'd want, that if it's not okay, it's not the end, and that God will burst the banks uh, uh, of... Um, of the things that we've imagined. Uh, then I'm going to skip on to uh, the, uh, the next part of the story. Waiting's hard. We see Anna and we see Simeon. Anna, it says, is well advanced in years, having lived with her husband for seven years from when she was a virgin. Uh, and then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. I can't help but think she'd be lonely. I can't help but think that having her in her younger life, having all this promise of a, a marital, incredible marital life, and then her, her husband dying, that she'd be lonely. And, it's, and, uh, and it says that she was a widow until the age of 84. So she, uh, she was alone. It says that she was, um, didn't depart from the temple. She worshipped with fasting and praying night and day. Another thing I found interesting looking at the names, her name means grace or favor, but in the Bible it also um, says that she was the daughter of Phanuel. Um, and uh, I don't think it's an accident that that's, 
that's mentioned. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's accidental. And scholars think that this person was probably a person of uh, significance. Otherwise, they wouldn't have mentioned mentioned his name. And Phanuel means the face of God. It's the same word that um, in the Old Testament, um, when uh, Jacob sees God face to face, and he says, I'm going to call this place Phanuel because I've seen God face to face. So almost in her family line, there's this image of seeing God face to face. And yet she has lost her husband. She's on her own. And that must have been really difficult. Um, And yet it says that she persevered with prayer night and day, seeking God. And lo and behold, she sees Jesus. She sees God face to face. And the word is fulfilled. Um, Similarly, Simeon. It says that he uh, was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him, and and it had been revealed by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Again, he was probably an old old guy. Um, His name means obedient or listening. And from that, we can sort of infer that he, he was, yeah, he was positioning himself before God, um, in order to, to, to see God's will come about, he didn't give up, if that makes sense. It says the Holy Spirit was upon him. Um, and that when Jesus came into the temple, he lifted him up in his arms. Um, and it must have been tempting to give up, but he didn't. He pressed into God because there was something greater coming that would burst the banks of what he imagined. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in God is in the manger, the Advent season is a season of waiting, but a whole life is an Advent season. That is a season of waiting for the last Advent, for a time when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Um, when Sarah and I got married, we, um, uh, well, in fact, before we got married, we spent a year apart. So we were engaged, but we weren't living in the same place. Sarah was in Bristol uh, doing her PGC and um, sponging off her parents. I mean, living with her parents. And um, I was living in London and I was working. And we spent most of our weekends traveling back and forth on the train. We spent this whole year before we got married, engaged, waiting uh, to get married. And then eventually we got married and we moved to Wimbledon, um, which is around the time we joined this church. It was a really... It was a really hard time, and I'm sure other people here have stories of when they've had to do that kind of long-distance thing, whether it's with a, a partner or with your family or, or making it work over long distance. Um, and the picture the Bible paints of, uh, of, uh, of Jesus and the church is that it is like a bride and a bridegroom, that we're waiting for Jesus' eventual return, which we're going to be looking at in a couple of weeks. It's a joyous union and we'll be there forever. Uh, We'll be together forever. Um, Before the service, uh, Neil was just praying for me at the back and I had a picture of a wedding ring, but it was an engagement ring with a massive um, uh, diamond on the top. Um, Bigger than Meghan Markle's diamond. And, um, And I feel like that's God's promise to us that he's given us an engagement ring as the church, that there is this amazing destiny there is this amazing fulfillment that he's going to bring. And it's just bursting, uh, almost like this diamond, so huge on this ring. And there will be a time when we will be united and be with him forever. 
Um, the final thing I want to look at before I finish and you fall asleep is, um, is the kingdom. And just one final aspect of the story that I just found really interesting looking at it. Um, and that is that the kingdom, and you, you can't help take away from the story when you look at it with fresh eyes, is for absolutely everyone. Jesus didn't just come for the Pharisees and the religious Jews. He didn't just come for the men in a patriarchal society. He didn't just come for the, for the young. He came for the old. So he came, he, he came for everyone. And there's uh, this, the great verse in Revelation that says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and him with me. The glory of God is revealed to shepherds and kings, men and women, Gentiles and Jews. Not only this, but in the Gospels, Jesus particularly seeks out the downcast, the neglected, the downtrodden, to welcome them into his presence. Um, I was uh, reading around the shepherds particularly, and I don't know if you've read, there's a book by a guy called Kenneth Bailey um, called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And he talks about the shepherds um, and how even though in the Old Testament we have the image of a shepherd as being something really righteous and good, like uh, even God being a shepherd, the prophets being a shepherd, David being a shepherd. Um, by the time we get to first century Palestine, shepherds were actually considered unclean by rabbinic teachings. Um, it was a kind of a profession that you was looked down on and that you wouldn't really do if you wanted to fulfill the law in the proper way um, because uh, it was considered unclean. And yet the first people um, after the birth of Jesus that are revealed this amazing message is the shepherds. Um, Malachi writes, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Paul writes, there is neither uh, in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Um, and then the one final thing I just wanted to, to mention is Matthew's Gospel. So there's two Gospels that talk about the Nativity story. The other two don't mention it. One's Luke, which we've been looking at, and then the other's Matthew. And in Matthew's, he has the genealogy at the beginning which is the list of all the different people uh, in the line of Jesus and the thing that's so striking when you look at it is that that is a list of far from perfect people um, there are men and women on that list when traditionally a genealogy would only have men there are pious people and prostitutes on that list there are Jews and Gentiles there are murderers on that list um, and yet those people are in the line of Jesus those are the people that Jesus accepts um, in, in his kingdom lastly I'm just going to finish on this Tim Keller in The Hidden Christmas writes people who are excluded by culture excluded by respectable society and even excluded by the law of God can be brought into Jesus' family it doesn't matter your pedigree it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter whether you've killed people. If you repent and believe in him, the grace of Jesus Christ can cover your sin and unite you with him. So I think we'll finish there and do some ministry, I think, now. Um, so 
why doesn't why don't the band uh, come on back? 